This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. We're still thinking about Victor Navasky, who died on January 23rd. He was editor or publisher of The Nation for 27 years, starting in 1978, and author of several books, including Naming Names, a book about the Hollywood blacklist that won the National Book Award in 1982. I first interviewed Victor, it was about naming names, when it was published for LA radio station KPFK. My goal in life at that point was to write for him and his magazine. And three years later, I became a contributing editor of The Nation. And eventually we launched this podcast. In 2005, Victor published the book, A Matter of Opinion, arguing that even in the age of the internet and Fox News, independent journals of opinion were vital to the health of democracy. We talked about A Matter of Opinion in May 2006. This book is about your life in magazines. Uh, when you became editor of The Nation in 1978, what was the circulation at that point? We claimed it was 22,000, but we were unaudited. And my suspicion is it was closer to 20. Closer to 20. And, and what is the audited circulation of The Nation uh, this week, this month? Well, the last time I looked, it was 184,576. <laughs> so uh, I guess we have to call you a success in the magazine uh, business. How, how did you do this? Well, it, I didn't do it, John. You know, I mean, Katrina edits it. Uh, we have great Alex Coburn and Katha Pollitt are great columnists. You are a frequent, contri sometime contributor. Sometimes, sometimes. More frequent. No, it's an, a great team. But in the magazine business, it is true that survival is the ultimate test of success. And The Nation, which was founded in 1865, is America's oldest weekly magazine, while publications like the Saturday Evening Post, Collier's Look, Life, with circulations in the millions, have gone under. This book, called A Matter of Opinion, it's about magazines. Would you call it a how-to book for people who want to start a magazine? Well, I'll tell you, John, you know, I showed the manuscript to my son who read all the three pages, and he said, I get it, it's the how not to. <laughs> uh, but in fact, it started out to be a meditation on the roles of journals of opinion, and then when my publisher, Arthur Carter, sold me the magazine for money I didn't have after ma making me the offer that I should have refused, I changed it from a, a third-person meditation to a first-person misadventure story. <laughs> and uh, it's partly uh, a memoir, a professional memoir, not a personal one, sort of, but it's also partly how to do it or how not to do it, if you will. And then partly it is, as you said at the outset, the case for independent journals of opinion in the face of this everything else that's happening, the conglomeratization, the Murdochization, the tabloidization, the Oprahification, the simplification, the bureaucratization, the concentration of journalism. And uh, these, these 18th century relics are the uh, number one counterforce, you know, showing what what it could be and should be. Well, uh, let, let me ask you about that argument. Thing, things, have, as you say, have changed a lot since you started at The Nation in 1978. At that point, there was no 24-hour cable news, much less the Internet. Uh, today, 
on the internet, you know, a, a, a thousand flowers bloom. Everybody can publish their own blog, which is sort of like a journal of critical opinion. But but you still think we need the weekly journal of critical opinion, which is printed on paper and sent through the mail, which, as you concede, is very expensive and very slow. Uh, why do you think we still need the nation, as well as the National Review, the Weekly Standard, the, the right-wing uh, weeklies, as well as the left? Well, I'll tell you why I think so in a minute. But, you know, when we started the nation and when I did a, a business plan for it, I didn't include the Internet in it because it didn't exist, or at least not in my uh, vision of it. And um, last year, we got 28,000 paying subscribers to the hard copy magazine who came to us by way of our free website. How many? So, Say that 28,000. 28,000. twice as many as came the previous year. Now, when the people first started talking about uh, the blogosphere, they didn't call it that then. They, but when they first started talking about the new information highway, all of these other things, they predicted the end of books and particularly the end of magazines because you could make your own magazine out of these various uh, websites and articles that are up there. It's, it doesn't, it's not happening that way. And, uh, of course, the blogosphere is not fact-checked. And, uh, you know, one's tolerance for um, reading articles of a certain length is, at least in this culture, is limited. And that's one of the reasons that the pieces that work best on various websites are short pieces. And, and magazines can run short pieces and long ones. And they've been vetted by editors who not only are looking at the particular piece, but... Uh, are putting forward a menu of things that uh, you should read together, and there's a gestalt that arises from that publication, and it's a, you know, it's a form that has lasted for hundreds of years, and I suspect it'll be around long after we're gone. Victor, one of the things you uh, steadfastly refused to do in your work as publisher of the nation was to turn it into a nonprofit, which would bring in a lot of money in the form of tax-deductible contributions. You've always insisted that the nation remain a for-profit enterprise. I wonder first, has the nation ever made a profit? Well, um, before I got there in 1978, we were told that there were three years when the nation uh, made a profit, and I kept looking for them, and I couldn't find them. Okay. No one could agree on which three. The last three years, we have taken in more man money than we spent. But for years, I would go around make a, making a speech, and I would claim that one of the reasons the nation has survived longer than any other weekly magazine is because it's a cause more than a business. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't run it like a business, but we can't say that next year, given the rising costs of paper and the increased postal rates and all of that, despite the fact that I have testified in the past at the Postal Rate Commission and will in the future on behalf of postal subsidies for uh, journals of ideas and opinion across the political board, uh, we can't say that we're going to continue to operate at a profit. We hope that we will continue to grow. This idea of a government postal subsidy for journals of opinion, is this an original idea of yours? Well, I'd like to think so, but uh, actually George Washington was in favor <laughs> of free delivery, free delivery of newspapers, which then were the equivalent of journals of opinion. Ben Franklin used to send magazines 
free through the mail. And Tom Paine was all for it as well. We're talking here about magazines on the left mainly, but I wonder if you think that magazines of critical opinion are as important to the right as, as they are to the left. Well, you know, National Review, was uh, Bill Buckley's magazine, was started around 1956. And they put forward all of these ideas and nourished the ideas. And they also brought together different elements of the right. They called it the fusion phenomenon, but, but actually it, using the glue of anti-communism, they put together the coalition that won Barry Goldwater, the Republican nomination, in 1964, and ultimately nourished these ideas, cockamamie as they were, that uh, Reagan tried to implement when he got elected president. So uh, magazines of the right and left have played extraordinary roles in the politics of this country. And when people say, well, their circulations are tiny, you know, they don't matter, or they preach to the choir, they misunderstand the roles of these things, that, that their circulations are tiny, but the quality of the people who read them and the strength of, of the ideas that, and the power of the ideas to move their constituencies is quite real. Do you think it's true that the nation is preaching to the choir? Well, if it were true, first of all, I would say there's nothing wrong with that because the choir or the converted, they don't have a chance to read everything. And just like you want a restaurant critic to tell you where to go, we live in a society of opinion trusteeship, and you need the arguments, the ideas, the facts and figures to buttress the, the politics that you instinctively and intuitively adopt. But in fact, anyone who looks at the letters page of the nation would know that <laughs> yes. if it's the choir, it's the di most disharmonious choir in the history of the world. There is more space, for example, between our columnists than there is between the Democrats and Republicans. It's just that we have a different kind of debate going on in our pages. There is more difference of opinion between, the, for example, the radical feminists and the uh, civil libertarians over issues like should pornography be for sale, the uh, arguments between the top-down, old-fashioned socialist planners and the bottom-up Greens and Luddites. There is a cavernous space there, and uh, much greater than the difference between the two parties who have more in common than the Democratic and Republican parties than what separates them important as what separates them is. Well, I, I want to return to this this question of the Internet and the bloggers. Of course, uh, some of our best friends are bloggers, and the Internet, as you point out, is, is full of opinion. It's a great democracy of opinion, millions of opinions. The title of your book is A Matter of Opinion. I, I wonder if you think we have too much opinion out there now and not enough people going out and digging up uh, facts. It is now fashionable to take the position which you have just articulated. One of the loudest exponents of this view is the president of ABC News Television, David Weston, who both says that what we need is less opinion and more objectivity, and that if you spend your time with opinions, you have less time developing the facts. You know, I think, first of all, what that does is it ignores, it, it lumps together as opinion everything from Rush Limbaugh, to Bill O'Reilly, to great bloggers, to irresponsible bloggers, to surrealist bloggers, <laughs> and Maureen Dowd and Ann Coulter. It's a, um, a term that is too broad. 
So you have to define what you mean when you talk about opinion. To me, someone who had a very wise thing to say about this was uh, the late historian Christopher Lash, who said that what we have to do is see information not as the uh, precondition of debate or the clash of opinion, but as its byproduct. And you need these competing views in order to arrive at meaningful facts and, and in order to have a real understanding of what's important and to put things in context. And it's the old debate that went on years ago between uh, the elitist columnist, Walter Lippmann, who believed that the news was out there to be found, or information facts were out there to be found scientifically, and uh, John Dewey, who, who said, you can't do that. What you can do is ask the right questions. And sometimes there'll be facts that can be found, other times that they're contingent, other times they're, you've got to ask further questions, and you don't know until you have asked all the questions what the important ones are. Well, I'd like to close by asking you to tell the story of the voicemail you got from the 68-year-old widow in Abbeville, Louisiana. Here's what she said. I need to ask a favor of you. I'm stuck in Abbeville, Louisiana, and I want to move, but I want to move somewhere where I can see a Democrat before I die. It occurs to me that you might be able to rummage up a place where people are actually subscribers to the nation, where I would have somebody to talk to. I don't want their names or anything. I just want a town where there are a few kindred souls. And then she added, and if you could call around noon, I'd be grateful. I'm about to cut the grass. <laughs> so what, what do you make of, of this message and others like it? Well, I think, you know, I've long thought that for, for a lot of people, if you ask them who they are, they identify themselves as nation subscribers. And that this is a community of folk who are pleased to be know that they're not alone and not isolated no matter where they live. Uh, in their views, which are outside of not only the mainstream press, but the mainstream dialogue. And so it's a, it provides a sense of belonging, and it's not, it's not just a matter of therapy. It's a two-way conversation that goes on, and it happens through the letters pages. It happens with events that the magazine throws around the country. It happens with correspondence that doesn't find its way in the letters pages. It happens over the Internet. It happens with nation discussion groups around the country. And uh, it's a growing community. Victor Navasky, we spoke with him about his book, A Matter of Opinion, in May 2006. Victor died on January 23rd. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 